Welcome to the 249th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Hagenbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Toffel. And let me tell you, first of all, welcome to the 2020s, Kevin. Woo! Woo-hoo. Do we feel different? Not really. <laughs> okay, to be fair, we are recording this on December 31st, but I'm not sure I'm going to feel different tomorrow when I wake up. Yeah. I'll I'll be a whole new man. Whole new man. New decade, new you. So this week's show, we're going to focus on a couple things. One, the wise data breach. Two, what could be possibly done about this. We've got a lawsuit affecting Ring. And the California IoT laws go into effect, well, as of yesterday. Plus, we're going to talk about our CES predictions because that starts next week. And our guest this week is Pernilla Johnson of Ericsson. She's the head of Ericsson's Consumer and Industry Lab. And we're going to be talking about a report they put out that predicts the future of the Internet. And instead of doing the 2020s, they're thinking of the future of the Internet in 2030. And their idea is that they're going to build the Internet of Senses. It's crazy. Oh, I thought it was going to be like the Matrix where you jack into the Internet by plugging your brain in. Guess what? We actually, it's kind of close to that. And she actually references the Matrix in the interview. So it's fun. You're going to want to listen to it, if only to be like, yeah, no, that's weird. But first, we should take a moment to hear from this week's sponsor. This week's sponsor is Serent. And they want you to know that building a great connected product is tough. Although it may work well in your lab or field trial, once it's in the wild, wild west of real customer environments, it gets more complicated. To build a product that works well in the real world, you should check out Serent. Their solutions make it easier to get products connected and keep them connected. Go to Serent.com to learn more about their solutions. That's Serent, C-I-R-R-E-N-T dot com. Okay, Kevin. Ah. Let's talk about the wise data breach. This happened. It actually would have happened last week's show, probably. Yeah, it would have. Yep. <laughs> we didn't talk about it because it happened December 26. Essentially, what happened is, well, <laughs> wise there's a, had... There's a lot to unpack here because of the sequence of the events, quite honestly. Yes. The bottom line. So everyone who's like, ah, I bought Wise because they were cheap and everyone said they were pretty good. And that is still the case. My big picture assessment of this is wise did a couple things wrong i think they realized what they did wrong but you should not freak out wise also did several things right so let's talk about what happened wise was notified by a security publication and a security research group that they had customer data on an unsecured server in aws and within 15 minutes the security firm published that report. So Wise was a little upset about that. I, uh-huh. And they should be. And they should be. I have not talked to the company that published the data, so I do not know what their side of the story is. There's always multiple sides. But bottom line is everyone knew there was a weakness. They probably tried to exploit it. Wise quickly secured the data. They also realized that some of the authentication tokens that connect your Wise to your Madam A 
gear and Madame A again is our name for the lady, the digital assistant in your Echo device. <laughs> She's not a lady. She's not a she. It's an it. Ah. Okay. So Wise disabled those tokens, which meant that you probably got a notification from your Wise gear when you tried to say Madame A do something with Wise. Or maybe you just got a notification from Wise or a logout from Wise. Or from Google, actually, because that's what happened to me. It basically broke the connection between uh, Wise cameras and uh, Google Home. Right. And they did that as a security reason because it was breached. So they didn't want somebody who wasn't you being able to access that. That's why they shut it down. So everybody had to log back in, basically, and reestablish those connections. So let's talk about why this happened. Kevin, you want to break it down for people? Yeah, so what Wise was doing, according to their multiple updates on their uh, in their forums, they had moved some production data to another database to test some things. It was also a subset of production data. So it's not like every single Wise customer customer's information was on this wide open database. Two issues here. They used production data for testing, which in my experience is a definite no-no, but that's neither here nor there right now. And also when copying the data from production to a test database, the security aspects were not copied over with the data. So that's why it was left unsecured. So what has WISE done and what does this mean for you? WISE refreshed all the Madame A tokens, the Google tokens, and IFT. They're also suggesting that you go in and change your account. Your account credentials were not shared. The information that was breached did not contain passwords. It did not contain any of your personal financial data or video files. So that's really important to know. However, Mm -hmm. hackers do have your email. Wise is suggesting that you change your password as a precaution. If you use good password hygiene, you probably don't have to do this. And by good password hygiene, I mean having a new password for every single device and the reason for that, just in case people aren't sure what, why you would bother doing that, if you use the same password for everything, somebody could take your email address. Match it to a list of pwned passwords. Yeah. To a list of known passwords. And then if they get that, then they could just start trying all these different services, logging in as you with the same ID and password that you use all over the place. Maybe they could log you into Google or to iCloud or whatever it may be. So you don't want to do that. You should always have unique passwords, preferably use a password manager so you don't have to remember all those strong passwords because we all use strong passwords, right? All of us. All no of us. No password one, two, three, four? Nope. 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 I actually let my password manager generate strong passwords. I couldn't remember them if I tried because they're so me long too. and have so many different characters. Yeah. Lord, help me if my password manager is breached. Or, you know, if you don't want to use a password manager because you're old school, that's fine. Write them down on a piece of paper. Which means it don't carry with safe. Put them in a safe. That's what I do for my backup codes. Yep. So yeah, I keep I keep some of mine in my backup codes. Okay, so that is that is the four one one on that. I will say Wise is also encouraging you to use two factor authentication. I think that's actually (laughs) Yeah, that's very smart. You know, maybe not for your thermostat unless you're really worried someone's gonna like maliciously hack you and try to like jack up your AC bill. But for a camera, I feel like that's probably really important. And we'll talk about that again in a later story when we talk about the ring lawsuit. So here's what I think we should start doing as an industry. We should be thinking about how to secure 
not just our data, but how to secure processes. And I, I was talking about this with Kevin because with this, I was like, this was a user error. So far, what it looks like is someone just made a mistake. Kevin says, don't use production data. I fully agree with that. I would also say we should be using and creating checklists to make sure every developer is following the right processes to secure data. And I think of these checklists the same way I think of something like a pilot's checklist that they go through before they start a plane and fly a plane. Or in the operating room, there is a list of a certain number of steps for preventing infection. And everybody they may not like it, but they go through the checklist every time. And that just helps you avoid what are essentially dumb mistakes. But we all make dumb mistakes. So I think if you're a developer, and maybe we should have a broad sense of maybe this should be codified. I, I feel like we don't have to go that far. But you should have the data that you're generating and playing with now with like medical devices that are connected or home camera data is commensurate with the types of risk that come from having an infection in a hospital or possibly a plane crash. Lives may not be lost, but it can really hurt people. And anyone who's had their identity stolen can tell you that these things, it's very painful. So I agree with everything you said. The only thing I will add to that is, and I say this from having worked in some Fortune 100 companies with development shops and also my wife who is certified as an auditor for what's called CMMI, or the Capability Maturity Model. I forget what the I is. I believe it's integration. That was developed at Carnegie Mellon University with uh, the Software Engineering Institute back in the 80s. And what it really means is it's a set of processes in your organization when developing software based on audits. You can be a level one through level five, where a level five is a fully mature software development shop because it has processes in place for just about everything, including this. I, I raise this because it's so hard to kind of codify this for every software developer out there, but a good software development shop would have these in place already, or they should. I feel like they don't. And I feel like that's one of the things, I mean, think about move fast and break things. That is the antithesis of have a checklist before you... <laughs> develop a feature or you're right i mean if you're you're agile or scrum or whatever process you follow to develop your software whether it's for iot devices or websites or apps it you know it doesn't matter data is data is data i think yes um, move fast and break things is a good appropriate process for certain projects but they don't supersede your internal policies and procedures Break things doesn't mean let's get our production data out for all the world to see, right? Right. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. That's, that's so not the good breaking. So Exactly. I would love to hear from you guys. I'm thinking about what some things on this checklist might be. So if you have thoughts, feel free to share it with us. And, and maybe Kevin and I can come up with a starter, a starter list or something. Obviously, probably everyone will have to develop their own checklist, but maybe there's some broad things we can agree on. Right. Before we move off this topic, just to put a pin in this whole thing, only because the way this was handled by the security firm has led, in my opinion, and based on Wise's information, to speculation of a massive, massive breach. I read a story on MarketWatch quoting the report saying the information of 2.4 million users was exposed. Well, that is the Wise users. And Wise does say that everyone who was a user before December 26, 2019 
is affected. Then that kind of brings up a different point because Wise also says it was not a full production run of all their data for all their customers. It was a subset. So again, I don't know if it was 24,000 because that's how many Madame A tokens were exposed. And again, that came from the security firm or 2.4 million, again, came from the security firm. Wise has not said how many. Another example, the security research researchers said data was being sent to Alibaba's cloud. That is not true, according to Wise. There's a lot of misinformation, I guess, is really the point here. Yes, I think there was some irresponsible reporting, too. Oh, yes. On the part of the security firm. So I teased this earlier, but Ring has been sued. And remember how we're talking about two-factor? Well, two weeks ago, the big story was hackers were able to access Ring cameras. And a lot of this is still speculation, but the speculation is that they were able to access them because those passwords and emails were floating around on the internet. From a previous compromised activity. Yes. Now, some people are saying that, no, it was clearly Ring that was hacked, but that has not been shown with any certainty. This gets into this whole like two-factor password management. And, and we'll talk about the role of the user versus the role of the company in a few minutes. But the bottom line here is that Ring was sued in the Central District of California by a parent who says that the companies violated the implied contract laid out in the privacy page of Ring's website that respects customers' rights to privacy and security. Suits are written to be inflammatory, but basically the ramification of the defendant's failure to properly secure their cameras and attendant access protocols may be felt for years to come, the complaint says. Although a Ring customer can disconnect the cameras, hackers have had access to information derived from those cameras for years, including, but not limited to, intimate details of household members, work schedules, and property contents. So mm. this happens a lot. <laughs> yes. These types of lawsuits. It's, it's one of the first ones, I think, from a civil suit perspective, attacking a smart device company, which says that, A, the industry is growing up, and B, that I, I don't know what the B is. The B is... <laughs> we need two-factor authentication as a mandatory aspect of these devices, in my opinion. And we might get it. It goes into our, our third story. We're just segueing all over the board mm -hmm. today. Look at us. So it's January 1st, 2020, which means there are two new laws in the land of California, which because of its large population and many companies being based there means that it's probably the law of the land effectively. We have the SB 327, and that is a security bill that deals with device security. So this is the less talked about bill, but it's really important for the Internet of Things. It's the IoT Device Security Act. And it says that companies building connected products must implement, quote, reasonable security features, unquote, on their products. The law is going to take into account the device's function and the type of data it collects when determining how reasonable the security features are. I personally think the California AG, who's going to be responsible for filing suits on companies to find them and that sort of thing under this act, should make two-factor authentication mandatory using this yes. law for things like cameras inside the home, which would mean going forward, devices that Ring sells and any other company that sells connected security cameras in the home would have to force customers to do two-factor authentication. I think customers are going to be pissed about this because 
the reason you don't have a lot of people doing two-factor authentication because it's a pain. Well, it depends on how it's implemented. If it's for your initial app and device setup, okay, that makes sense. And if you don't log out of your app, say your Ring app, your Wise app, whatever it is, it should just work after that, at that point. If you have to set it up again or use it on a different device, then that first time should require two-factor authentication. Most of my two-factor things log me out once a month. Okay, but even if your camera logged you out once a month, that's 12 minor inconveniences throughout the year for much better security and privacy. Yeah, people hate that, though. Well, then... I do it, <laughs> but I, I'm just saying that I can see people getting real cranky about this. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then the other law is the California Consumer Privacy Act, known as CCPA, and this is like GDPR for California. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> it's a consumer data and privacy law that says companies have to inform consumers about the data they keep about them. They have to delete an individual's data upon request. They have to allow Californians to opt out of the sale of their data to third parties. And the law prohibits companies from charging more for features that protect privacy. So this one is where you're going to see lots of things like websites that are going to be like, hey, under this, it's kind of like GDPR all over here. Mm -hmm. We're going to collect your data. And you're going to be like, click through to say yes. And you're going to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to see the site. I want to read the story. Click. I wonder what this will do to the pricing of such devices because these companies may lose some current income streams or have reduced income streams on the sale of data. It just says a customer can opt out of the sale of their data. So I don't know how many people are going to actively opt out. I'm really interested in seeing that. Well, it should be an opt in. Well, I think that was one of those issues where the industry was like, uh, no. <laughs> right. right. Uh, no. But we'll see. Well, yeah. Again, I think what's going to be interesting in the next few months is we're going to see a lot of, and we saw this with GDPR, with European journalists requesting access to their data and trying to figure out what's going where. And I yeah. think we're probably going to see that with Californians writing about this particular law. So I think we're going to see a lot of interesting information come to light. We'll actually, I think, see some of that information come to light. And this is another good segue next week when we're at CES, because this is a great question for us to be asking all of these companies that we're going to be meeting with. They surely have read these new laws and understood what potential changes they have to make. So I'd be curious how they respond to how does this impact you? How do you plan to implement it? I will talk to them and we will ask them about that. I will say that the Attorney General of California, up until even like two weeks ago, was still hosting public forums about how to implement these laws. Mm -hmm. So, Oh, it's early. I know. There, there's still some question about like, oh, what are we going to go after? How are we going to do this? So we'll see. And I, I think people are going to be waiting for that. But let's talk about CES. Super much fun. <laughs> Dep Kevin, depending on your definition of fun. <laughs> I think it's, we're going to have fun, Kevin. I mean, worst case scenario, we get to see each other. Yes. I am really excited about CES this year. And part of the reason is because I feel like we're, last year I started seeing really good and interesting ideas around helping people age in place and using sensors and connected devices to help I'm going to say health, not the wellness department. The wellness stuff, I think there's so much of it that is so BSE. But a mm -hmm. big trend is going to be devices that really try to help 
with people aging. So there's there's a company called Monit that is doing sensors in adult diapers that's going to tell people when they're needing to be changed, which hopefully in like nursing homes and caregiving environments can help people address this faster. Mm -hmm. So people don't get sores and that sort of thing. There's also going to be lots of sensors being deployed for fall detection, that sort of thing. We've seen a lot of that. Companions too, I think. Oh, yeah. And and companions, which gets to your robot trend that we'll talk about. So I, I think there's going to be some really interesting things there. I will also say along that lines, we're going to see a lot of Thames kind of device and things that you put on your head and they're going to use magnets or electricity to activate parts of your brain for sleep and meditation and overall depression curing. I think some of this is going to be absolute bunk. And it's Mm -hmm. going to be real hard to tell what's real and what isn't in this field for a while. And I call this digital snake oil. Well, we'll have to test these headbands and sticky things as they come out and see. Yeah. So I think that's going to be a big trend. I'll tell you Mm -hmm. right now, the bathroom people are still making your bathroom smart. I just (laughs) don't get it, but sure. And then we're also going to see some interesting stuff around wireless detection of people. Again, we talked about falls. I saw that last year. I think we're just going to see even more of it this year, and it's going to be a little bit more mature. Mm-hmm. And something else we've seen over the last two or three years, and this will obviously continue, um, and this is not earth shattering, but I'll mention it anyway, more voice assistant integration into everything and anything, quite honestly. I mean, it started out with just smart speakers, and now voice is just going into every product. It's ridiculous. I have a feeling that we're going to be overwhelmed by that at CES this year. It's gotten so easy and so inexpensive that it's almost commoditized, right? And as things get commoditized, such as wireless chips and so on and so forth, voice assistants and cloud services, I think this will be the year where you're going to see some company names that you're like, really? They're doing something IoT? Just mainstream household common names. Um, I'm basing some of that on some of the product pitches and, and vendors that are on the exhibitors list. I could already see new companies getting into the space because the space is matured enough and it's possible for them to put smarts into products that you would not have expected at this point in time. So, And hopefully those will be secure. Well, yeah, that's the thing. The, the newer entrants don't always... Um, design with security in mind because they are new entrants and they don't have the experience of the companies that have been around for five or more years. Although but, a lot of those companies do tend to use the platform players like Tudia, yes. Ayla, Afero, and those guys actually are mm-hmm. super focused on security. And I remember, yes. was it last year or the year before where Energizer was showing off like smart light strips? And I was like, what the what? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yep. that's just going to keep going. We'll see more of those, I'm sure. And then each year, I see more and more robots, and I, I get happier and happier, not just because I see more of them, but because the capabilities and the features and functions are things that more people will want, not just a talking head that mimics a person when it uses the voice assistant things. I mean, an actual useful robot. We're not going to be at the Jetsons level yet, but each year we get more and more viable options to push this into the mainstream consumer's hands. So I'm excited about that. Excellent. Yes. Maybe Samsung has talked about a new product (laughs) called Neon. By next show, we will know what it is. But for now, we just know it's the first viable AI. But it has nothing to do with Bixby. Correct. And I'm pretty sure this is public. So I'm going to say it. They're not calling it like an assistant or anything. It's 
what is it called? A something human? Artificial human. An artificial human, because the real thing just isn't good enough these days. Yes. Well, I could argue that they may be right on that score. Mm. Uh, <laughs> that could be our guest for the, sh- the podcast show at CES, the okay. artificial human. Neon mm-hmm. on the show. Okay. So that's what we're looking forward to at CES. We'll get back to you once we know what we've seen, and we'll tell you all kinds of the crazy things that we we have encountered and what's exciting, what isn't, and what you should look for in the near and far term. Would it make sense to tell people that we'll probably have pictures up the yin-yang on the Stacy on IoT Instagram account? Yes, as soon as I find my password on my login manager. <laughs> and two-factor authentication, you'll need that too. I'm like, all right, yes, you should. We have a Stacy on IoT Instagram account. Kevin is way better at posting photos, but you should go there for them because he does post them and he's very good at it. I too will post photos, but just fewer. I always go visit John Deere. And so there's always a photo of me with a tractor. Yes. Or a combine or something. That's mandatory for CES. Agricultural. Don't ask me why. And now it is time for the Internet of Things podcast hotline, where we answer your questions about the smart home. The IoT podcast hotline is currently not sponsored by anyone but you. Yes, you or your company could become a sponsor if you reach out to Andrew at stacyoniot.com. And in the meantime, we are still going to be answering your questions and giving away a product. I'm not sure what product we're going to give away. Kind of depends on if we get a sponsor who wants to give their product away or if I'm just going to pick something random. So we'll, we'll stay tuned next episode for what you might get, but rest assured it will be connected and you will enjoy it. We are about 12 hours shy of midnight when we're recording this. So next week, we will also tell you who won the Philips Hue lights for this month. I know it's frustrating, but the rules are the rules and we follow the rules. Dun, dun, dun. But if you want to be entered to win in the January contest, give us a call at 512-623-7424. And now... It's time to hear from this week's caller. This week's caller is Curtis. Let's hear from him. Hello, Stacey. This is Dean Kekritis calling from Austin, Texas. I just built a new house in Austin. and It's the first time I've, I've really got to employ a whole bunch of different smart home gear. I largely chose Amazon and built around Amazon and Ring and, and Heos uh, for audio and Lutron for light and things like that. My first question is, you know, there was a lot of frustration that I did not have kind of one source to buy everything and get all the advice I needed to make sure the gear was compatible and worked well together and there was it was kind of a, a single interface to be able to, for, for me and my kind of technophobe family to be able to kind of use the gear. So, I mean, I think that's one general question I have is who's going to step up and actually provide that for new home builders or people that really want to use the right level of smart home technology in their home and get the most out of it. And the second one is so much of this smart home technology requires a very strong Wi-Fi connection and connectivity. If that is interrupted or, or cut or or just, you know, you're at the mercy of these of these kind of dumb pipes, in a lot of ways, 
you know, your whole kind of house falls apart. <laughs> you know, there's like smart locks and there can be security issues and things like that, cameras. What's coming down the road that will prevent that and give homeowners more more confidence and security that, you know, the systems that they're investing so much money and time in will have kind of uh, backups and, and things like that that will make them effective in, in all cases. So those are my two questions. Uh, love your show and hope uh, this somehow makes it on the show. Thank you very much. Bye. Okay, Curtis, it sounds like you have two issues. One is you just want to know who the heck's going to support this stuff for normal people. And the answer to that is basically CDA pros that you call yourself or companies like Control 4, any sort of professional dealer will install and handle this for you. Most people will probably do something like that. A lot of companies are going, I guess, maybe more down market in this world or making it more approachable for mainstream consumers. And the other thing that you could consider is looking at Amazon smart home services or even Best Buys. I'd probably go with Amazon's. Um, but then again, of course, you're not going to have a choice over which ecosystem that uh, you're going to use. So, uh, but Stacey, you, you had a smart home consultation from uh, oh, I did. Amazon. Yes, yeah. and that was really helpful. This person was willing to program and set up routines with me, and we did some of that, but I didn't need to do too much. But yes, that was a very easy thing to set up and do, and I actually even learned something from it. So, yay! Yeah, I think I can't remember what they. I know you had it for free because it was you know part of. No, I didn't. To I, I paid for it. Oh, I did not know that. I thought it was more like a hey, let's we'd like to show you our service, kind no, of like a review no, unit. No, no, I did it as a normal consumer. And do you remember how much it was? Maybe. $99? No, I think it was only 50 Okay. I think it was 50 but it wasn't more than $100. Mm -hmm. It was super helpful. Well, it wasn't super helpful for me, but it would have been super helpful had I not already – this person was capable of installing stuff and linking it together. Mm -hmm. I just had already installed everything. Right. And then the second question Curtis had for us was about Wi-Fi, and it's so essential – what the heck do we do when Wi-Fi goes down? How can we make this more resilient is what I think he was going with that. The answer is local control. The challenge is local control really depends on the device you're buying, not actually the ecosystem you've bought into. There's a little of that with Google doing like local APIs and supporting that. So that helps. But at the end of the day, you actually do need individual devices to support a local connection as opposed to a cloud-to-cloud -cloud connection. And they're getting better about it. Like Philips Hue offers that, Lutron offers that. I don't know, are there others? I'm trying to think of others that offer that. Well, even from a hub standpoint, if you still use a hub, some I know Wink had done some work in this area and local control was part of a software update to the Wink Hub 2 I know that Samsung has some support for it in their Samsung SmartThings hub. Hubitat is a local-only hub, uh, although it has limited radios and just Zigbee and Z-Wave. It connects to your LAN over Ethernet to access devices on your network, but it's all local. So there's been a lot of movement here, but nobody's really put forth a full end-to-end -end solution. And part of it is because of what you just said, Stacey. The device makers have to support this with their devices by supporting these APIs and features from all these uh, hub makers and platform providers. Yeah, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. I mean, the emphasis has been a lot more on making Wi-Fi more reliable. 
So you'll see things like mesh networks with Lennar doing their smart home efforts in some of their model home communities and new homes. Their part of that is building a Wi-Fi certified home. So the emphasis is less on local and more on making Wi-Fi better everywhere. And think about it like when your power goes out, your lights go out, and that's inconvenient, but it's just sometimes happened. And sometimes the internet is going to go out. And it's inconvenient, but it does sometimes happen. <laughs> you might have to actually get up and flip a switch. Ah! All right. Well, that concludes this week's show. So please stay tuned for our guest, the first one of the new year, Dr. Pernilla Johnson, who is going to be talking about the coming Internet of Senses. You're going to love it. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest is Dr. Pernilla Johnson, who is head of Ericsson's Consumer and Industry Lab and the co-author of the Consumer Lab Hot Consumer Trends Report. Hello, Pernilla. How are you? I am excellent. I am so excited to be here with you to talk about what will happen in this entirely new decade that we are entering. Exactly. 2030. 2030, except we're actually entering 2020, which is why I thought this was such a fun interview, because this report looks at what's going to happen, gosh, 10 whole years hence. And it's pretty crazy. You guys call it the Internet of Senses. So give us a taste before we dive into the report and some of the methodologies. Give us a taste of what you found that should be happening around 2030. So basically what we are expecting with the Internet of Senses is a paradigmatic shift. Because right now with 4G and the smartphone, I usually say that we live in a smartphone paradigm. We are so in love with our smartphones that we have a hard time actually imagining another reality emerging. But with 5G being the immersive kind of uh, G coming on, and with that, we will see a lot of different devices. So we will be entering a multi-device era where we will have the smartphone and other things at first, but then we will probably merge over to smart AR glasses, maybe smart earbuds, maybe a thing in your mouth, you know. So we will have a, like multiple devices and loads and loads of uh, more sensors around us that all will be interacting and creating this Internet of Senses for us. Wow, this is so fun. So we're going to dig into what that means exactly. But first, tell us how you guys did this research. Who did you interview? How many people? Where do these insights come from? This is actually part of a research program that we have been running since 2010 in Consumer and Industry Lab. So each year we actually reach out to um, what we call a profile of early adopters. So we interview the consumers that are the most advanced when it comes to internet usage and, uh, you know, the latest gadgets and so on. In this particular report, we actually interviewed over 12,000 respondents in uh, 15 megacities around the world. And they are aged between uh, 15 to 69, but they have to have uh, this early adopter uh, profile then. If you would translate this into a statistical representative sample, you could actually say that this study represents 46 million citizens out of the 248 that million that are actually living in these cities right now. 
So it is a small portion of the average consumers, but they are interesting in this early adopter profile. Got it. Okay, so it's people like our listeners. Yay! I will talk a little bit differently. Sometimes I will talk about the consumers in this study. And when I talk about the global average smartphone users, that is not actually the people in this study. Got it. Yes, that's everyone as opposed to us. So in this research, y'all laid out 10 different trends. And I'll link to the research in the show notes so you can find all of it. But broadly, this is all about, I feel like it's my brain interacting with the internet and my, the rest of my body being able to feel it, including touch, smell, and taste. So let's start with this broad vision of my brain being the UI, which was your number one trend in kind of scary crazy to me. Yes. If you imagine that we live in a full Internet of Senses world where we have AR glasses, we have loads of sensors in the environment around us, and we would probably have devices, perhaps one on our teeth to feel the digital taste, to be able to smell, and then smart earbuds or something like that. That would actually, you know, we would have so many pools of data moving around there, and we would also kind of need to interact with all of these devices in a smart way. So it will take a lot of computing power, a lot of coordination, and also a very convenient way to communicate with this. If you think about it, today we use smart voice assistants, right? So we, we talk to Siri and, uh, and so on uh, in everyday life. But if you have a pair of augmented reality glasses on, you don't want to go out and talk to them all the time, right? And it wouldn't make sense to do that with all of the other sensors in your environment being at their headphones. So the leap to actually think a command quietly and having that translated into a command would make your tech environment kind of respond to you, that is not too far. Of course, the first thing we think about when we start to go about the brain as a computer interface is, of course, privacy, because we wouldn't want anyone to read all our thoughts, at least I wouldn't. <laughs> and I don't think there is a consumer in the world, except for some very forward uh, researcher, perhaps, who would think that that would be uh, very interesting, that we do not want, right? So it's not about the internet is going to be able to read your every thought, but actually to use it in a way that is natural and convenient. And here we come also to actually what we believe is the biggest barrier to the Internet of Senses, and that is not the technology in and out of itself, but making that really user-friendly and a technique that consumers actually can trust. So I, for example, have been at CES and I stuck a headset on and with that headset, I thought, up oh, and I sent a drone sky high. Yes. So you have actually already tried this. Okay, so, so this is what we're talking about. Okay. Yes, this is what we're talking about. So then if we build something like this, what does the business model for that look like? Yeah, so I think the first thing we need to think about is how do we actually make people feel comfortable in actually using this technology. One of the trends actually tries to answer this a little bit, and that is that of the post-privacy consumer. That trend is really, really interesting because here we can see that the consumers that are most pro-regulation and legislation around privacy are also the ones that says that technology like face recognition that will be everywhere will actually essentially 
transform the concept of privacy. And this is really interesting because we can see that they are quite skeptical and they want this challenge to be solved because they are also the consumers that want the Internet of Senses the most. So this group actually says that they want an Internet of Senses to the extent of 81% of these consumers, whereas the rest of the early adopters, only 50% say that they want the Internet of Senses. So this kind of explains to us that the consumers actually expect the industry to solve this problem. And at Ericsson, we think this is a really important challenge, and it's not something that we can solve by ourselves, but it needs to be addressed by the different parties in the whole ecosystem. So we really want to lift this discussion to the surface and, and discuss how this is going to work, because it would be, of course, disruptive. And I think that if you go to business models and so on when it comes to this, I think that in a world where the Internet of Senses is a reality and we live in like a merged reality where digital is everywhere, I think we radically have to think about how to reinvent advertising, for instance. Because the vision that is displayed, for instance, in Matrix, where you have lots of messages just bombarding you, you know, if that would be the reality, nobody would want to use this technology, right? What what if, you know, we could have really smart advertising that would actually produce a value for the consumers? So, you know, maybe you have a smartwatch that can sense that your blood sugar is low. And then you get the digitalized smell to you of your favorite soup. And then you think, ah, that's great. You know, where can I buy this soup? And you get a little route to go there. That would actually be a different type of advertising that would actually come with the right information to you according to your taste at the exactly right time. So that feels very manipulative. And it gets into one of the most intriguing trends on the list, not the most, but we'll say one of the most, which is this idea of digital aromas. I don't know if if piping, like I feel kind of like the the smell of the Cinnabons in the mall is pretty, pretty coercive. Mm. Uh, (laughs) They're just so good. But if I imagine something like that coming from my computer, is that how we should envision digital aromas? What does that really mean, this particular trend? Yes, I think that in order for all of this to work, we cannot have technology that is perceived as intrusive. Because if we do, we will not want to use it. There has to be an interaction between the different parts in the ecosystem here, where we create an environment for the consumer that they will actually want to have and that they perceive as valuable. So that is the first prerequisite for this to work at all. I think when it comes down to digital aromas, I think it's really one of the things there that I think, you know, will be perhaps the first things that we will see here is maybe that we will add smells into the gaming world to experience that as more real, perhaps. But you can also imagine that, you know, smells and tastes, they are really essential for you to remember something. What if you could have social media where you could actually experience the smell of snow? Or you could actually experience the smell of your newborn baby 40 years afterwards. That would, of course, be very, very special to you. So I don't think it's so much about one of these sensory experience in and out of itself, but it's the combination of different things that really makes this interesting. Got it. And let's move to another trend, which is taste buds. 
Actually, we'll, let's move to a part of the body. Let's talk about the mouth in the digital trend report, because you have two. Yeah. You have a trend called Sounds Like Me, which is talking about getting a digital upgrade to the way we, we speak. And this deals with things like language translation, but also might parlay into the digital world. And then also this idea of digitizing taste buds. Can you break those down for me? Where did these come from? This feels really weird. Yeah. Yes. When it comes to the sound environment, if you think about the multi-device environment where you would like to listen to or see content wherever you are, you might actually want to create your own sound bubble. This is a trend that we see that consumers actually really want to have. If you think about it, to, to sit in a public transportation environment and be able to kind of create your own little sound space would be probably quite nice. But I also think that it's connected to the smart earbuds and the way we see earbuds actually evolving. Another usage point of this would be to have smart earbuds that can actually instantly translate languages for us. Already today, I think uh, the translation from voice commands to speech has 95% inaccuracy, and that is quite good. So the step here to analyze languages is not that far, but we really need 5G for that quick transmission of this data into people's earphones so we don't get a lag when we get translations, right? It is not just about the devices or the needs here, but it's kind of the interaction between these different parts and how they come together to get that experience uh, to work really well. Got it. And then digital taste, digitizing taste, what is that even about? (laughs) So this sounds really, and this is actually the trend that I think that people have the hardest time grasp. But if you really think about the usage areas of this, it's really incredible. Because if you think about that, you could actually, you you talked about that you had the cinnamon buns that was actually exciting to you that smelled really good, right? What if we could actually make healthy food tastes just as good as those cinnamon buns that you crave so much. I mean, that would be really revolutionizing, right? And then think about if we actually could make food that is possible to produce much more sustainably than the foods that we normally favor today, then this could be a really big revolution. Oh no, this is like my vegan soylent will now taste like cinnamon, yes? Yeah, exactly. Or, uh, you know, your bean beef would actually turn into a juicy steak, right? I think that this trend has a lot of potential. I used to work as a trend researcher, and authenticity uh, in food production has been a big trend ever since 2006, I think. We have talked about the authentic food and locally grown and the organic and everything like that. But with technology like this, we could actually go beyond that and actually focus on doing food that is good for you, tastes fantastic, and also can actually help minimize waste and uh, unsustainable ways of doing agriculture and so on. So I I think this is a very big uh, opportunity area. And commercially, I think the opportunities uh, are really big as well. If you think about shopping and if you could really sample taste food, if you were, for instance, to cook a dinner for your friends and you could sample taste what it should uh, taste like beforehand, that would be a really big help, right? 
Maybe. Sometimes my cooking experiences go awry. All right. We don't have time to cover any of the other trends. I knew this would happen, but I Ah. did want to understand how we're going to get there. And I know that you had mentioned AR glasses in our conversation. This feels obviously so much more immersive than just smart glasses. So walk me through. We're in 2020. How do we get all the way to this in 2030? So basically, there is a lot of if and buts here, right? So what we see right now is that consumers actually expect something different than the smartphone to emerge. So they are not really happy with the the smartphone as it is today. And they do not think that this device will actually enable all the potential that comes with 5G with this immersive kind of era that will come. So the smart glasses will probably, when they come as a mass market item, that will probably be the entrance point for the Internet of Senses. The second thing that I think will happen is digital touch and feel. We see this emerging quite a lot right now, quite a lot together with IntraIKEA, which you know is a big retail company. And when we talk to them about digital touch and feel, they get really excited because you can imagine what can happen if we could actually digitally try things on, but also touch and feel the fabric. You could actually feel what cushion would uh, feel like if you touched it or a blanket or whatever. So the commercial incentives to actually make that happen is really big. And then I think taste and smell will come, but probably at the later stage. And then, of course, the thought-controlled internet we think will be a reality first in 2030. Got it. Well, I look forward to this visceral future, and I appreciate you coming on the show to talk to us about this today, Pernilla. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week.